The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And when are... And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favour in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you, and bring out my present, and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. 
a fire sprung up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night, the Lord said to him, Take my father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants, and he did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cut down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the, man of the, the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god... He will let him contend for himself after his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me, Let me speak once more. Please let me test once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, 
and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground, and on all the ground there was dew. I think we should give Ivana a round of applause for that. That is tricky words. She went through. Thanks, Ivana, for doing that for us. Uh, friends, um, let me pray for us and let me organize my notes at the same time. Would you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace to settle our hearts and uh, continue this time of worship. We pray that you would speak to us, uh, that you would speak to us both individually and as a community. And may we walk away knowing you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, once again, if you're visiting, very special welcome to you, particularly if you're someone who's exploring the, the faith uh, that we believe here at Canterbury Gardens Community Church uh, in a God who's great and mighty. Uh, we are not a perfect group of people. Uh, if anyone in here says that they are awesome and wonderful and have got it all together, they're lying to you. Come and talk to me. I'll show you their Facebook account. Um, and I won't do that, by the way. Um, <laughs> we're not perfect. Uh, but we believe in a perfect God who uh, works and encounters imperfect people. And we pray that you will continue to encounter Him this morning. Uh, if you've been following with us, we've started our series in the book of Judges. Uh, and we have come to uh, this section in Judges to meet the next judge by the name of Gideon. And Gideon is becoming one of my favorite judges. Uh, if for those of us who are a little bit visual, I've got a little map here for you. Uh, let's see how it goes. It's very blurry. That's really helpful, isn't it, for you? Um, to kind of give you an idea, when you read particularly the book of Judges, you might assume it's kind of happening in one place. It's not. It's spread throughout uh, at that time uh, in Israel. Uh, and so uh, what's going on is Gideon is in that little section there. You'll see Othniel, Deborah, and now we're going to Gideon. And he's in that area there. That's where Gideon is. This is where the story is happening. It's not a fake story. It's a true account. This really happened in history. And this is where we're up to. So today we're going to be introduced to Gideon. And uh, when I talk about a judge, once again, it's not someone like the kind of Judge Judy, you know, sitting on a chair, got a little mallet and whacking and making decisions. And, uh, and then they interview people afterwards. It's nothing like that. A judge, particularly Gideon, is, is both um, uh, serving God and, and, and rescuing people. Uh, rescuing the people of Israel, but I think he's almost like a prophet because later on you'll see some things happening as we explore him in the coming weeks. Uh, this week I was sitting there and thinking how to come up with really uh, catchy phrases for you to grab, and this is what I got. Verses 1 to 7, regret versus repentance. It's very creative, isn't it? And then finally, the rest of the time, we're going to be talking about give me a sign. For those of you who grew up, grew up, in, the, grew up in the 90s, there was a song that came out that was very popular that came straight to mind. It's an older song too. Please do not Google it. It's a terrible song to look at. We're going to be firstly beginning with regret and repentance. So here we are. Israel uh, is back at it again. Uh, they've slipped back into rejecting the God that they worship. They're called to worship. They're called to follow. And there are consequences. We heard, uh, heard that in the very first verse. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the, of the Midianites seven years. So the Midianites are a group of people who are in that land. They're a nomadic race, and the way they encounter different tribes and nations, and particularly Israel, is they go into that land, they take all their spoils, 
all the hard work spoils in the way that they, their fruit and their crops and their um, different varieties of things for their own selfish gain. They're also idol worshippers. And you'll find that these groups go into the point, the way some historians uh, describe them, is that they go into this country like Israel, like locusts, countless swarms, powerful, bringing along with them their um, their cattle and their tents and, and camels and devouring and carrying away any fruits off the ground. And not only do they rob Israel, but they also destroy what the owners have. And in this moment where we have in Israel's history, is they're not fighting back, they're not trying to resist. They run off to hide. From all accounts, it seems there is no one in charge. There is no king. And they're actually facing the consequences of their rebellion and sin. So the Israelites are running scared. No one's fighting for them. God's brought judgment on them. And it's very heavy judgment. And they respond to God. How do they respond to God? Well, verse 7 tells us, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Why? Was it because they were sinning? Because they had done wrong? Because of their oppressors, the Midianites. That's why they cry out. And God answers. But God doesn't bring along to start off with a judge. He brings along someone, a prophet. We don't know the details of this prophet. A prophet in that time was kind of God's mouthpiece. So that's why this prophet starts with a statement, Thus says the Lord. This is what God is saying. Listen up. I've got news for you. He's heard your cry. And God declares, I led you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. The prophet arrives. It's not good news. It's judgment on the people of Israel. The reason is given. But it's wonderful the prophet does is the prophet reminds the people of Israel who they first belong to. That they belong to God. The God of Israel. And not only that, they're reminded again, hey, do you remember this God? This is the God who rescued you from slavery. So they're both reminded of their relationship with God and the power of God. And then they're reminded again what they've done wrong. What they've done wrong is they've decided not to fear the God that they were called to fear. And rather, they've decided to worship the idols the foreign gods that they're surrounded by. But the judgment is even more deeper than that. Did you see that? Did you pick it up? It says, but you have not obeyed my voice. See, in these verses, what you have is a group of people, the people of Israel, have got the Midianites who've come and they've invaded. And for seven years, they're facing this. And they cry out, But the crying out is not using biblical language where they're saying, Lord, we're sorry for what we've done. Please forgive us. Rather, it's a sense of regret. We've caught ourselves in this situation. See, friends, these verses are there for a reason. 
God is showing to you and I that all of us in some way not, are not very good at repenting. What is repenting? Repenting is the Christian word to say, Hey, Lord, I've sinned against you. I've done wrong against you. Please forgive me. So I'm going to turn. Turn away from those things and follow you and love you and the things of you. Regret is not that. Regret is kind of like your hand is caught in the cookie jar and it's stuck. You realize you put yourself in the situation and you're like, oh, oh no, I've been caught. Oh, I wish this wasn't happening to me. See, Israel as a nation are crying out not because of what they've done in their relationship with God, because they're facing the consequences of their action. Not because of their love towards God, rather because they are in trouble. Christian counselor by the name Ed Welch, he talks about guilt and he talks about uh, regret. Uh, he talks about how we deal with guilt. Guilt is a good thing in some sense because it, it creates something in us. And he, he makes this comment. He says, well, guilt is a reminder. It's a reminder there's a consequence. We, we've given into something. And he says, what is guilt? Guilt indicates that we have sinned against God. It can be aided by the law of God and the conscience for many of us. It isn't hard to find. Our wrongness is palatable presence. We know we can behave badly and we know God knows it. Yet, even then, we might not have a sense that our offense is against God. How many times, I've never done this, by the way, so I pray for Ed. It says, how many times have I sinned against my wife? By the way, I've done this lots of times. And confess my sin to her. But didn't confess it to the Lord. I know what I did was against her, but it doesn't always feel personally against God. So there's a big difference. It's, 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 it's this difference of saying regret. I have sinned. Yes. But it's not realizing they've sinned or compromised against God. And the thing, though, in this passage is that God is gracious to bring this situation and say to them, hey, face the consequences. I'm here to bring this gracious message to you. In the very idea of sending a prophet is God showing his grace to the people of Israel. He doesn't annihilate them. See, friends, if you want to know what the heart of every sin and the core uh, thing of sin is to say, God, I do not have reverence for the things of you and that matter to you. What I'm choosing to do is to worship something or someone else. And in this moment, that's what's going on with Israel as a nation. And in Judges, you will see that over and over again, time and time again. That's the story for all of us. Judges is like a mirror staring back at you and me. We're no different than the people of Israel. See, all of us are prone to worship, if you're using the kind of language in Judges, other gods or idols of our time. And often we are caught with a hand in the cookie jar and we feel like, oh no, I've messed up and, and I feel regret. But we might not necessarily run to God and seek his forgiveness. And we spend a lot of time beating ourselves with a regret stick. But see, regret doesn't actually change your heart. And that's the problem. Now, in this situation, in a church like this, there are quite a few different personalities. Some of us, I hear going, this is a bit heavy on a Sunday morning. Aren't we all under grace? Yes, we are. 
But brothers and sisters, we need to remember when you and I choose to worship something rather than the God of the universe and we take that lightly, there is a reverence issue. We don't remember that we do serve a holy God. Because at the heart of worshipping something else is ultimately, it is always going to be a worship issue. The question you and I have to ask is, who will I worship today? Who will I bow down to today? Using the language in the Bible, who are the gods that are calling out to me in our culture? If you drill deeper, ultimately, it's what we use in Bible language called idol. An idol is something that you find your satisfaction and joy in, you're shaped by it. And everything about it gives you great joy and happiness and you become a slave to it. Idolatry ultimately is almost surpassing the truth of God. And it comes in various ways. And ultimately even saying what God says in his word in the Bible, well, you know, this, God's gracious. And he is. That's the story even here in the book of Judges. Now, I must say, in this kind of situation in our church, there are some of us who will be sitting here and just going, yes, doing your list of all the bad things that you've done this week. To those of us who are perfectionists among us, take a deep breath. God is gracious. And the very story of this prophet coming is a reminder that God is very patient. And if you're in that moment of saying, well, it's time for me to condemn myself, well, hang on. There is something you need to repent and ask God's forgiveness, do it but also reflect in knowing that if God is in your life, He's begun a good work and He will finish it. How do you know if there's that vice or sin that you constantly go back to or that idol and you're tempted to? My guess is if God has begun a good work in you, where you are now is in a very different place than you were five years ago, ten years ago. Because God begins work and He changes people. You might not be perfecting it, and that's the whole point. God did not wait for Israel to get it right, to perfect it. He meets them exactly where they're at. And what he desires is not perfection. What he desires is his repentance. That's what God desires. Not regret, but repentance for what they've done. And God is ever so gracious in this story. And how does he bring grace shown, declaring? Well, through this wonderful guy called Gideon. In this section, it was all about, give me a sign, God. Give me a sign. So we meet Gideon. The angel of the Lord came and sat on the turbinth of Ophrah, and belonged to Josiah the Abzirite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat, the winepress, to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken and given us into the hands of the Midians. So here we have Gideon. He's the fifth judge of Israel in the story of Judges. Where do we find our hero of the story, in a sense? Like we met Deborah under a tree, passing out judgment. No, he's not under a tree. Neither is he out there fighting the Midianites. Where is he? He's hiding. He's hiding away. 
keeping his very life source, but for the provision of his own family, most probably. But he's, you know, we've just read, right? For seven years, the raiding armies would come and take all they want and leave and come back again. That was the kind of the storyline. And here is Gideon hiding away, scared. And I love the, what the angel of the Lord says. The angel of the Lord comes and says, Oh, mighty man of valor, or a translation say, Oh, courageous one. When I read this at first, I thought, I reckon this angel of the Lord is probably Australian. It sounds very sarcastic, doesn't it? But I don't think the angel of the Lord is being sarcastic at all. Gideon is hiding, but the story is not about the title that the angel of the Lord says. It's more about what he says, these words that should bring comfort. The Lord is with you. And for the rest of the few verses that we're going to spend time in, it's so real and raw, and I love the interaction between the angel of the Lord and Gideon. I mean, firstly, Gideon doesn't seem too fussed. Maybe he's questioning who is this angel, or he kind of says, says, you know, Lord, he uses that kind of title. He's probably questioning, is this really the angel of the Lord? And later on, he obviously he discovers it is the angel of the Lord and what that means. And you kind of understand Gideon's situation, maybe. Here he is, he's saying, uh, hold on, mate, just hold on. Did I just hear you say the Lord is with me? Uh, just FYI, I'm hiding right now on the threshing floor. And you say the Lord is with me. L-O-L. The Lord is not with us. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the stories. I've read, if you want to use our day language, I've seen the verses on the wall. I've got that t-shirt. I've got the coffee mug. I've sung the songs. I've heard about the stories of God rescuing and parting the Red Sea and leading us. Really? I don't think so. He's really deserted us. I mean, where are those miraculous deeds I've read about or heard about? Here I am. We know it. We as a nation, we as a people have been handed over to our enemies. And here I am hiding away, just wanting to survive. Right now during our service, a bunch of rooms around here in the portable and around. There's a bunch of kids hearing about a great and mighty God, hearing stories about His faithfulness, hearing stories about His grace. I mean, even one of the one of the um, kids' church rooms, I know often that they sing, "My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do." But there's going to be a time in their life as they get older. But like most of us in this room, it almost like becomes those stories of old. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, I've heard those stories, Shabu. God is big and great and mighty. It just becomes stories. In many ways, we might even know it theologically. We might even say, yes, I know the doctrines of God. He's good, he's great, he's mighty. We've just sung all those songs this Sunday morning. But in some sense, I think in those moments and circumstances, we are more like Gideon than we realize. Here is Gideon described, oh, mighty man of valor. And here is Gideon and knowing that he is experiencing God's very judgment for his sin and his people's sin. And for him, he feels like God has abandoned him. And it is a beautiful picture right in front of us. There is the angel of the Lord not waiting for Gideon to come to him. There's the angel of the Lord going to Gideon. Here's the angel of the Lord meeting Gideon right where he is. 
in his mess, in his doubts, in his regret, the Lord pursues him. You know, Gideon continues to have this interaction with the angel of the Lord. I mean, where is this God who's rescued us? You say that God is with us? I mean, where are the signs? I don't see any signs. There's no sign telling that you're with us. But did you hear what the angel of the Lord's response is? In verse 14, he says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? In a sense, what the angel of the Lord is saying, Hey, you want a sign? Well, guess what? This is the sign. I'm sending you. I'm with you. And I love Gideon's discussion here. He turns around and goes, Ah, hold on, mate. Just calm down. I'm I'm making Gideon Australian. He's not, by the way. He turns around and he goes, "Uh, Just want to clarify. um, Are you sure you've got the right address? My clan is the weakest. This is the Menashe clan. Uh, clan, are you sure you want us? I mean, I'm the least in my father's house, which might have means that he might have been the youngest one. Here he is threshing the floor. Uh, he's saying, hey, are you sure about this? Gideon is not convinced. What's going on here, I think? He's not convinced because the very circumstances speak otherwise to him. To him, it feels God has abandoned. He's not convinced because he doesn't back himself. He is looking at, basically, he's not capable of doing this. And he says, hey, Lord, are you you sure? Have you come to the right address? I mean, if there was a draft pick of the tribes to choose from Israel, it's not this tribe. Why don't you go to Judah? Why don't you go to the tribe of Benjamin? Maybe that's the tribe you ought to choose. No, that's not the tribe God chooses. And that's the whole point. Here, the angel of the Lord's focus is not about what Gideon is not capable of doing or capable of doing. Rather, the angel of the Lord focuses on what? Truth. And what is that truth? Verse 16, And the Lord said to him, But I will be be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. In other words, Gideon, it's not actually about you. It's about me being with you. You shall. It will happen. And not only that, as one man, it's a picture of strength and unity, that he's one. Friends, for us, as we reflect on this, in our day and age, in whatever situation you are in right now, ultimately, whose promises are we resting in? This is the very circumstances that constantly preach to us that God is not in control. Do you feel even now, right now in this morning, or maybe even this week, that God has actually abandoned you? Maybe you're looking at your own abilities and going, oh man, I can't do this. There's no way I'm capable of doing this. And you know what? When we look at that, it's actually countercultural in our culture, isn't it? You know, I don't have to take much to turn on the radio and we hear lots of songs of how awesome we are. A popular cultural idol by the name of Oprah Winfrey puts it this way. You look at yourself and you accept yourself for who you are. And once you accept yourself for who you are, you become a better person. Now, if you've got an Oprah fan, okay, no worries. That's fine if you uh, trust that. But here's the thing. 
The point is not about you and I looking at ourselves. That's the problem. See, God's perspective is to say, hey, stop looking at yourself. Look to the one who is God. Look to the one who says who you are. Look to the one who says to you that he is your God and that he will not abandon you. Look to him to find assurance, no matter what circumstance that you're in. See, we know that, right? And Gideon, in some sense, might know that, but it's very clear he's not quite there. He wants some proof. He wants some signs. He wants a sign shown by this angel of the Lord. And I get Gideon. When I thought about this, I thought the first thing that came to mind as an illustration was uh, from the movie The Incredibles. One of my favorite cartoons is The Incredibles. It's the story. It's up here on the quote here. This is where Mr. Incredibles is coming home and he gets out of his car and he, he's so frustrated that he picks up the car and he realizes there's a little kid on his little truck looking at him. And he just puts the car back down and walks, goes in. Later on, the scene cuts again and the kid's there waiting. And he says to Mr. Incredible, uh, Mr. Incredible asks him, what are you waiting for? And the kid says, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. See, this is the thing, I think, this is what Gideon's doing. He's wanting something amazing. He's wanting to be captured by this God again. And that's what Gideon wants. He wants to see that God is really with him. And this is absolutely amazing that the angel of the Lord doesn't brush him off. What does he do? He waits. He says, okay. It's a gracious picture of a God who's willing to wait for Gideon to go and get the things that he needs to get to come back. Here what we have is a picture of a gracious God. Here we have a picture of a God who's showing grace to this guy, Gideon. Gideon wants a sign. In some sense, what he's talking about is, hey, show me a sign like the old days, the stories that I've heard growing up of you being a great and mighty God doing the impossible. And here we have God not sort of brushing him off or annoyed and frustrated, but very gracious and patient with him. So Gideon comes back with a gift. It seems that the translation said some sort of food that he brings back, and the angel of the Lord decides to show a sign. It's a significant sign. When we read these kind of things, we shouldn't just go, oh, yeah, big deal. It is a big deal. Here we are. There, there's no, Gideon brings what he has to this angel of the Lord. And out of nowhere comes fire. This is an imagery of what he would have heard of the stories of Moses. When the fire, God just appears in a burning bush. God's presence is there leading the people of Israel. And this is picture shown here in a very small way. On a wet rock, fire out of nowhere. It's to show that God is the one who's doing this. God's power is being displayed. And it's like the light bulb switches off in Gideon's head. And he realizes whose presence he's in. And he says, oh no, master, Lord, I've seen the Lord's messenger face to face. The Lord said to him, you are safe. Do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon's response is to build as a remembrance and an altar. And says, the Lord is on friendly terms with me. Gideon gets, 
I think the second sign, but most people would say it's his first sign. And what happens is he comes to the realization who he's physically seeing face to face. The language is that the angel of the Lord is the God himself. He's physically seeing, and, and Gideon's response is, Oh my goodness. And there are these comforting words come You are safe. Do not be afraid. You're not going to die. And Gideon builds an altar. In your translation, you might have that the altar represents peace or or shalom or what kind of language. But the literal way of saying is, the Lord is on friendly terms with me. And that is the picture that we have here. God has not abandoned Gideon. Gideon is not an enemy to a holy God. And not only that, Gideon is safe. Gideon is safe. See, what, what, what Gideon is experiencing is, is a shadow moment, is what biblical scholars call it. This idea of him coming face to face, and this language of the angel of the Lord is a shadowy figure. It's a shadow of the one who is Christ. And this moment here is Gideon giving what he can. And, and this fire comes and Gideon realizes, oh my goodness, this is God himself. This is the angel of the Lord. And Gideon is experiencing God's grace in that very moment. Rather than the fire consuming him, he is safe. He doesn't need to be afraid. He won't die. And he is on friendly terms with God. And friends, if you know God, these words are a reminder to you and I, he has not abandoned you. He's there with you even today. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 6 to 8, prior to Judges, Gideon might have grown up with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for he shall go with his people into the land. The Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. These statements in this moment in history for Gideon's life, despite of Gideon and his people's sin and rebellion, even though Gideon felt God had abandoned him, in this encounter that Gideon has, it's a reminder, no, God has not abandoned you. And so then God calls Gideon to do what is required, that is to destroy the altars that has been placed firstly beginning at home. At that moment, do, do we have Gideon, the great warrior, going in straight away? No. He is still afraid. And he goes at what? At night time. The story gets out. He's found out that Gideon has done this. But the point is, even, it's not even that Gideon goes and hides at night, but he actually does the job. Even in his sort of fearful, uh, impre- fearful uh, experience that he's having, he doesn't want to get in trouble, but he does get in trouble. He's found out. And here we have the father who should not even have these idols in his own very home, who is compromised. It's a picture that Israel as a nation have now sort of um, morphing their religions together says, oh, no, 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 don't kill him. And it sounds very religious, but he's not right now. 
He should have not even had that day. He should be stepping in and defending his son. Rather, to keep his own honor, and some would say to kind of keep the family line keeping on going, says, don't destroy him, let Baal do it if Baal is real. It's kind of like a throwaway. But what we have is a God who's sovereign in control, protecting Gideon, and Gideon does what is required, one small step of faith. See, what we have here is Gideon now has done what is required of him. He heads, uh, he's now calls the trumpet. He blows the trumpet and he calls people to come for battle. The Holy Spirit of God comes upon him. He rallies the troops. And is he ready to go? Good to go? Verses 36 to 40. What has happened? He goes, says, ah, oh, but wait, I need more signs. I need a few more signs, God. I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. There's dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground. Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand. As you've said, it was so. When he rose early next morning, squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece, fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more, please. Let me test, test once more with the fleece. Please. Let me dry on the fleece early and on the ground and let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece early and all the ground there was dew. Gideon still wants more proof that God is with him. He wants to confirm. He's asking for more signs. And God does the most, most kind of like humanly impossible thing, which I've called the wet-dry cycle miracle. He decides to do this miracle to show, yep, God is with you. It's only God that can do it. Now, in this moment, you might be saying, well, what's the point of this? What's the takeaway? Well, friends, this morning when you get home, if you have a decision to make, I want you to find a dry cloth, and I want you to go to the most driest room and hang it up and ask God to make it wet, and maybe that's your decision. Because I'm guessing most of you don't have sheep at home right now. Friends, I think often we lose the point of this passage. The very point is that God is being gracious to Gideon. He's gracious to his very lack of faith. He's very patient to him. So patient to him, he meets what Gideon asks. God does not have to do this. He meets Gideon exactly where he is. I know growing up, I used to often hear sermons about how if you want to make a decision, this kind of passage was used for those kind of purposes. And maybe you've experienced that for yourself, and that's fine, but I'm here to tell you this example here is more focused about God. In many ways, we are like Gideon. Remember what Gideon says in verse 36. He says, If you will save Israel. Didn't God just explain the last few verses? Yes, I will save Israel. I just told you that. But God is patient with him. God has already promised. Here we have a man who's gripped with fear and self-doubt because he's been experiencing for the last seven years hiding away. Seven years of armies that seem invincible. I mean, right now, we'll see this next week, right across the Jordan River, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east have come together and they're waiting for that moment. Gideon knows exactly. He might have rallied a group of people and we'll find next week what this looks like. We don't know exactly what they're going to be that. They might not be the top pick of the crop. And here we have Gideon saying, please, God, please, please, please do something powerful one more time. Maybe, maybe two more times, just to show that you're with me. 
Here's some sheepskin. Show me. Then I'll know you're with Israel. It's kind of this idea. Do the impossible. Show me a sign. It's a wonderful picture of a man who is struggling to believe, to trust God at his worth, and God in his grace does not condemn him for it, but rather gives him exactly what he needs in that moment. Friends, I hope that brings comfort to you of a gracious God that we serve. If you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith and the God of the Bible, I'm here to say to you there is a true God, the one and only true God. And right now, whether you realize this or not, you've been wired to worship Him. Your your heart is aching for that. You are filling your life and heart with other things that declare that you need to worship those things. It might be something or someone else. It's displayed in various ways. That's why you're not satisfied. Yearn for something deeper. The story of Gideon and to you and I is a reminder that there's a God who is just and holy, but is a God who is gracious and patient. And eventually he would send a sign, the sign, the one who God would send himself, that is Jesus Christ. And on a sign that is the symbol of the cross, displayed is both God's love and judgment. And he's calling maybe even you this morning to turn to him and put in faith. And you might not be there, that's fine. You might have lots of questions, you should. So we would invite you, maybe a friend brought you here. Turn to them, explore, ask, come to an informed decision to see if this God of the Bible is true or not. For those of us who are followers of Christ, the story of Gideon is a reminder to you and I on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, we have even more confidence in a sense because God's Spirit now lives in our hearts forever, constantly and continuously. He is with us. Because it's a reminder to you and I, we have a Savior who entered this world who was forsaken on the cross for you and me. And for those of us who put our trust in Him, we don't need to be afraid thinking and we don't need to go out and try to put fleeces out there to see if God is with us. God is with us. His Word says so. That's the promise of His Spirit in you and I. And that story of getting and providing a sacrifice, we're now kind of seeing if the, if the Lord will show a sign. And Gideon realizes he has a relationship with God, and that in that very language, that I'm at peace with God. The reminder of the gospel to you and I is that we are on friendly terms with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. Because we have now peace. There's no need for sacrifice. Sacrifice has been made through Jesus and his precious blood. And you might be feeling right now God has abandoned you in whatever situation. It might mean that maybe, yes, first, you might need to repent. There's something that you're clinging on to. Ask God's forgiveness. And if you are in Christ, guess what? He will forgive straight away. Don't live in regret. Seek his forgiveness. Christ has offered himself for you. You might be approaching a season in your life that feels overwhelming and daunting, thinking, God, are you really with me? Are you sure? I want you to know God's word declares that he is with you. In Hebrews chapter 13, uh, straight after all the Hall of Fate stuff about, and Gideon's name is mentioned, it says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? All these kind of quotes are from Old Testament quotes being brought over because on this side of the cross, we can say that. Because we have Christ in us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. So friends, where do we go from here? Well, first, I would encourage you to stop and pause and consider, is there anything that you're worshipping other than Christ? Is there an idol that you're coming to back in again? How do you know if this idol is an idol for you? Do you find your joy, hope, and satisfaction in it? And if it was taken away, what would happen? Would you still rest in Christ and His mercy? Go to Him. Ask God to give you His hate for idols. And not fear His judgment, but to trust in His mercy and forgiveness. Pray for forgiveness. Restore with Christ because He is there waiting. And maybe if you're someone who's facing this doubt, God is is not called to lay a fleece out. Rather, His focus is to call go back to His Word and the promises of His Word. And ask God to point you to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then pray. As those prayed in the Gospel of Mark, I love this line, I do believe, please help me overcome my unbelief. And finally, friends, God does not desire just a sort of like a circumstance change in your life. He wants a heart change. Whatever circumstance you're in, rest in knowing that God is with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. In closing, let me read this to you as a prayer. In Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13, we have King David writing this. I'm going to start at the Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, this morning, if there are those of us who are clinging on to idols for our hope and satisfaction, please help us to repent. Help us to experience your grace and mercy and forgiveness and to rest in your mercy and forgiveness. For those of us who kind of feel like Gideon in many ways, waiting for that sign, we thank you in Christ. You have shown the glorious sign that you're always with us. You'll never leave us or forsake us. So help us to trust in the promises of your word in whatever season we're in. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.